All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all Christians the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Big welcome to you if you're new. Big welcome to you if you're watching and joining us online, watching at home, in the gym, wherever you may be, in the sauna. We, as um, Ellie said, we're in the Ephesians series. This is part five of our whole series. And with Ephesians, you've got this um, incredible, sublime piece of literature. You've got this book that is written by Paul to a church that is just a general church letter. It's not to a specific church. It's written from prison in Ephesus. And it's like the first half of the book is this incredible, sublime outpouring of what God has done for us and, and how we, we, we fit in the grand scheme of things. And so the very first chapter was all about identity. And uh, we have this idea that our identity is not from anything. It's not from something that we generate. It's not from something else. Our identity is in Christ. Whatever is true of Christ is true of us. Whatever happens to Christ happens to us. And so we get this kind of incredible identity. That we have an identity which is far above anything that we can imagine. But then in the second chapter you get this thing about destiny. That God has not only got identity for us, but he's got destiny. In fact, these two go together because it's your identity that determines your destiny. Everyone say, identity determines destiny. When you know who you are, you can do what you're supposed to do. When you know who you're supposed to be, you can do the things that you're supposed to do. So many of us, we don't achieve our potential or we feel down on ourselves because we don't fully realize our identity in Christ. And if it just stopped there, it would be in the most amazing book. But chapter 3 is the crowning achievement. It's the pinnacle of the whole book because it talks about God's love. And we said um, just a couple of weeks ago that the biggest problem that you have is that you don't fully realize just how much God loves you. If we realize the unsurpassably great love that God has for us, it would change us in so many ways. And part of the Christian journey, and again, if you're not a believer here, or if you're looking to find faith, if you're on that journey, this is where the journey is going. It's a journey to discover just how very loved you are. Profoundly loved. Loved in a way that a human heart can't fully comprehend. But the more that we become aware of God's love for us, the more that it changes us on the inside. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians are these incredible outpouring of worship and prayer, praise to God, theological truth, who we are in Christ, the identity and the destiny that he's got for us and how profoundly we are loved. But it sometimes feels that if uh, the first half of Ephesians is all about making us feel good, the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians, Sorry, just trying these teeth in. Uh, the second half of Ephesians is all about feeling bad. And you may have dipped into chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is kind of cool, and we'll get onto that next week. It's, it's really cool. But chapter 4 and 5, they can be brutal. In fact, chapter 5 that we're going to do tonight is so brutal, it should come with a trigger warning. 
Because you've had this whole thing about, you're amazing, God loves you, he's got destiny, he's got purpose for you, you're incredibly loved. And then chapter five is all about the stuff, and it's the worst stuff, it's the most kind of um, typical stuff that so many people think about Christianity and Christian living. It's all about don't do this and don't do that, and that's despicable, and that's dirty, and that's evil. It's about sex, it's about immorality, it's about purity, it's about your language, it's about your um, drunkenness and all those kinds of things, about being greedy and all that stuff that can make us feel just really judged and trodden down and bad about ourselves. But that would be a mistake. See, there's so many mistakes that we make about scripture, so many mistakes that we make about the the Christian life. And it's so, so important, and, and Sam did great on this last week, building us up to this. It's so important that before you get into all this stuff, that you fully, fundamentally understand just how profoundly you are loved. But there's three, there's three misconceptions. I'd go so far as to say there's three lies that most people believe about Christian living. And I want to deal with these lies one at a time, one in turn. Because if you believe these lies, it will really stop you from getting the heart of what the Bible is trying to teach us and trying to give to us. Now, if you're not a believer or if you're just coming back to faith or you're kind of tentatively getting your toes back in the water, then you're probably more likely to believe these lies because these lies are kind of prevalent in our culture. But we're going to go through each of them and we're going to see what the truth actually is because what you hear is not true and it's not helpful. It's a lie. It's a misconception. And it's something that needs, we need to put the record straight. So the first lie is this. Christian living is all about rules and regulations. How many of you have heard that? It's all about rules, regulations. It's all about do this, don't do that. This kind of arbitrary rules that Christians are supposed to live by. So if we talk about sexual ethics, if we talk about drinking, if we talk about language, if we talk about moral behavior, well, it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations. It's like the Ten Commandments on steroids. It's like, don't do this, don't do that. You do this, then you're in trouble. You do that, then you're condemned. And if you have the impression that God is just coming up with a bunch of rules and regulations without any kind of rationale or reason or anything loving behind that, you're not going to want to go down that route. You're going to resent it. You're certainly not going to feel loved by God and you're not going to love him in turn. But this idea that what we do and how we live is all about rules and regulations is something that we absolutely have to deal with. Now, I don't know, put your hands up here if you are a parent. Okay, great, my hand's up, Kate's hand is up. Put your hands up here if you're a grandparent. Can we give a round of applause to the grandparents? Okay, put your hand up here if you're a child of a parent. Okay, good, we're on the same page. Right, let me try something out with you. What do you think is the worst thing, the worst thing that a parent can say to their child when they are disciplining them? What's the worst thing that they can say? I'm not bad, I'm disappointed. <laughs> Elliot, heard that one a couple of times. Uh, yeah, other ones, throw them out. It's for your own good. It's for your own good, this is gonna hurt you more than it hurts me. Actually, yes. Hmm? Because I said so. How many of you, put your hands up if you've heard that phrase from parents, because I said so. 
Okay, how many of you, and this is ridiculous, there's only like four parents in the house. How many of you parents have said to your children, because I said so? (laughs) I remember one time, uh, Zoe, our eldest, she was about 13 years old, and uh, I know, because you know, I've actually worked for a Christian charity, a family's charity. I've been around the world, been in, in, in hundreds and hundreds of locations all over. I've been on videos and I've done, done all these seminars and trainings and written books and whatnot on how to be a good parent. And uh, one of the things, and I know, I know you shouldn't say, because I said so, because it drives your children round the bend. And it just seems so unfair. It's like this kind of power play. But I found myself this one particular time with, with Zoe and she was doing something. I was not happy with this at all. And uh, she's walking with me and we're talking and she says, I want to do this thing. And I'm saying, no, you can't do this thing. And then she finally pushes me. Why can I not do it? And everything in me just wants to say, because I said so, because it's too complicated to explain. But I say to her something along the lines of, because I am your father and I am the parent and it's my job to keep you safe and this is something that I'm not happy with and you need to just go with my lead on this because I am the daddy. I've, you know, it's basically because I said so. She's 13 years, years old. She turns to me and she says, Dad, come on, let's be honest right now. You have never done parenting before. This is the first for you. You're improvising as you go along. You don't know what's right or wrong. You're just taking your best guess at it. So give me some better reason why I should go with what you propose. And I'm like, okay. And I was forced to give a reason and she got her own way in the end because actually she was right. But this whole thing, you sometimes think, I need a better reason. So if the Bible talks about sexual morality, for example. Um, This is a a subject that we're not afraid to talk about in Metro. Sometimes a certain person, if they're a follower of Jesus, if the Bible says, don't sleep around, no sex outside of marriage, you know how the Bible defines sexual immorality. Uh, Some Christians are just like, yeah, so the Bible says so, and I, 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 I believe it, I believe that the Lord has the best interest for me at heart. But a bunch of other people will say, Well, why? What's the point? And you can't just say, because I said so. Is this just a rule and a regulation that God has given because God is somehow some kind of Puritan Victorian guy, if you can have a Puritan Victorian guy, in the sky with his fob watch and his outdated morals, just telling us stuff and it's keeping us. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. Actually, the Bible never says that. The Bible never gives us because I said so. The Bible never just says don't live like this or don't do that. There's always a rationale. There's always a reason. There's always a compelling thing behind it. And if we understand the compelling thing, actually, it makes it a lot easier. Now, I contend that it's still good to do what um, I see in Scripture because sometimes I just have to say, you know, I'm not sure I see the whole picture here, so I'm going to go with what God says because I do trust him. But God goes so much beyond that, so much further. He says, this is why I want you to do what you are supposed to do. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. It says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Everyone say, dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
In other words, the whole premise of this, the whole way in which Paul encourages us and starts us off, he says, I want you to do this because I want you not to be following rules and regulations blindly because some religious edict from heaven says, this is what is the, the, the deal because I said so. He's saying the way that Christians are supposed to live is to live as loving as you possibly can, to live a life of love. And so when we're talking about sexual ethics, when we're talking about how we do relationships, when we're talking about dating, when we're talking about hookup culture, when we're talking about materialism and greed and the kind of unfair distribution of the world's resources, when we talk about the way that we treat people and the way that we relate to people, it's not about do this because the Bible says so. It's about asking yourself the question, what is the most loving thing that I can do in this situation? What's the most loving way in which I can conduct myself? But it's even better than that because Paul says, it's not just a life of love. He says, I want you to live as dearly loved children. You're dearly loved. Because you're dearly loved, you can love someone else. One of the challenges for a Christian living the Christian life is if I don't know that I'm fully loved and if I don't feel fully loved, if I don't feel like I'm dearly loved, it's hard for me to be loving to others. When we use people and abuse people, so much of the time it's because we're trying to fill an, uh, an empty hole within ourselves. It's because we want to get something from someone else. But someone that feels profoundly loved, that hole is so full of the love of God that it means I don't need to use other people and I don't need to abuse other people. In fact, I can lay down my agenda, lay down my wants, lay down my preferences for someone else. And so this is what Paul says. This is how this is going to work out. This life of love. He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In other words, the way that we relate to people you know, our sexual ethics, the way that we treat people, uh, the way that we are, you know, whether we lead people on or whether we bump from relationship to relationship to relationship, that way, all the things that we do should be fully informed by love. But it's not just sex, it's about greed. And then he goes on and he talks about this, this talk about kind of foolish, crude language. Just read that over there. It says there should be neither obscenity Foolish talk or coarse joking. I've got a, a, um, I've got a real stake in this stuff because this stuff was absolutely live for me when I was a young Christian. Uh, my thing is, and you might not believe this, but it, it, it happens to be a thing. But uh, when I was younger, I had a little bit of a quick wit. I could um, come up, and I would always come up with the, the cheapest, easiest gag. I mean, you could give me a cheap laugh, and I would go for it every time. And my language, I, I was two different people, essentially. I was great in church and Christian settings, but with my friends, with everyone else, with the people that I hung out with, I swore like a trooper. Why? It's just funny because everyone's doing it because I want to be accepted. I don't want to be that weird religious guy. I want to be in with the crowd. And also it sort of seeps into your brain and it becomes almost like a reflex and you can't help yourself. But then that level of kind of crude, laddish, 
banter. Yeah, it's just jokes. It's just fun. But usually with this kind of stuff, always with this kind of stuff, there's a victim. There's someone that is actually the butt of the joke. And I was notorious because I would always be the guy that would crack everyone up by some kind of foul joke or some really demeaning put down of someone else or just a kind of off color language and, and, and behavior. And it, it, just, it was just the way that I am. And do you know what I said? I said, this is the way that I am. This is my personality. It's just who I am. I make people laugh. I'm, I'm kind of the, the funny guy. I'm the guy that everyone else says, whoa, you're not going there. I go there. You think that I'm bad now. If anyone's been offended by stuff that I've said, uh, sometimes people in church, they bring me to to one side and say, Philip, when you do um, accents of people in your preachers, it's so offensive. And I'm like, I know, I don't know why I do it. It just kind of comes out of me, but it's just a reflex. Um, You think I'm bad now. I used to be awful, crude, coarse, filthy language. And I can literally remember to this day, the moment that I read this passage, and for some reason, I don't know, it somehow escaped me. I kind of felt like sex, bad, drink, bad, drunk, bad, drugs, bad, murder, no, no. But language, banter, I mean, come on. God doesn't care about that stuff. He's got more things on his mind. And then I read it, and and in the translation that I read it, it literally said, filthy language. And I'm like, Man, that's me. But then you see what the Bible says about why we do this, and you think, actually, no, it's not loving. This is a cheap gag. This is me feeling better about myself. And if I had a better encounter with the love of God that made me feel more whole and made me feel more complete in myself without having to score cheap stuff from everybody else or without having to play to the crowd, play to the galleries because I want affirmation from people. If I could feel that sense of love and if I could start to radiate out a life of love, it doesn't mean that I become a boring flat guy that just sits in a corner reading the Bible. Uh, But it means that there's a profound change in how I treat people. Not because I said so, but because what is the most loving thing? And so what we are encouraged to do in this this chapter of Ephesians is, is this, we're to live loving. Everyone say live loving. Again, if you're not sure about the Christian faith. You just need to know it's an invitation to a life of profound love. It's living in a way that is the most loving thing to do. Not in a way that is repressed, not in a way that is moralistic, just in a most loving way. So I want you to ask yourself a question. I literally want you to think right now, and some of you, you're already thinking. I want you to think, what thing, just think of one thing in your life right now that you do, that you actually, if you're honest with yourself, you know this is not loving for people. Anything that it may be. For some, it may be the way that you treat members um, in a romantic relationship. You know, you may use people. I know what it's like to be able to just get people to like you and then just string them along because you get a good sugar rush from that. You think, wow, I must be okay because I picked out that person in the room and bam, I got them. Uh, For some of us, it's, it's how we use people, not with the most loving intentions, but just to fill a hole within our lives. 
Or it might be that you're in an office and actually crude banter is just part of the workplace culture. And uh, you don't necessarily call it out. In fact, you're part of it. Or, or you're just you're kind of complicit in what is going on. Or it might be greed. Do you know the Bible defines greed as just using everything that you have for your own, res- your own pleasure? It, it's it's the, the kind of presumption that everything is there for my consumption. It's thinking, oh, it's my money, it's my stuff, I've earned it, I've got it, it's all for me. And the Bible calls that greed because we're called to love people with the resources that God has given us. So ask yourself the question, is there an area in your life that you know about? And actually, as we've been talking, it, stuff was probably bubbling around. But the challenge and the invitation is to live as dearly loved children of God. Live lives of love. So the first, the first lie, the first misconception is that it's all about rules and regulations. Ah, wrong. It's all about love. It's about thinking, what is the most loving way? If you could think about everything in your life and come up with the most loving way of doing that thing, you'd come up with a pretty good um, approximation of the Christian life. And, and the, the, the thing that God says is he says, look, follow my example. Follow the example of Christ. Let love be the light that guides us. And here's some few examples. And if you look even very briefly, you'll see that this is why God speaks to us like this. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about being loving. But the second thing, here's the second lie. The second lie is that it's all about shame. Again, well, put your hand up. How many of you have heard people talk about Christian faith about, in, in terms of it's just to bring shame on people? Any of you come across that stuff? Okay, we, we know this. It's, it's one of those things that will sometimes be, be spoken about of Christian living. That it's, it's, you know, it's the moral majority, it's the, the, the right, it's about people trying to shame everybody else. And you know, what we really should be doing is we should be allowing people to express themselves, be themselves, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's just you, you do you, you find your truth, you, you express yourself, that's the highest value that we have. And if you don't do that, then you're bringing shame on someone. You're shaming them for their choices. Every choice is valid. Every choice is okay. There's nothing wrong about anything. And if you criticize or critique or judge, you're just bringing shame. And actually, you'd be better off without faith. You'd be better off without all that God stuff because then you wouldn't feel such shame. You could just be you. You could just know that all these things that you do, they're just natural. They're just part of being human. And, and you know, there are, are foibles and they're the ways that we are. And, you know, some of us have just got big appetites and, and it, there should be no shame. This one is really, really hard because when you read Ephesians, actually it sounds kind of like this. It sounds like the Bible is saying, yes, you should be ashamed. And yes, we should shame you for what you are doing. This is what Ephesians 5 verse 11 says. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Everyone say, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. At first reading, it sounds as if God wants us to go around exposing people for their shameful behavior. But actually, that's not what the Bible is saying. He goes on and clarifies. He says, listen, 
everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. In other words, what we are exposing is not the deeds of other people. What we're exposing is our own stuff. And it's not so that we can be in shame, it's so that we can be in light, away from shame, the very opposite of shame. Scripture is basically saying that there are things in our lives, whether we are honest about it or not, that cause us shame. You know, there are certain things that we feel ashamed because they're they're not great things to do. But God does not want us to live in shame, God wants us to live without shame. And Christian living is not about embracing and endorsing shame in someone else. It's about experiencing a life that is free of shame. How does that happen? Well, he talks about bringing things into the light. And if something is in the light, it becomes illuminated. And then Paul says, it actually itself becomes a source of light instead of a source of shame for you. In essence, what we're doing is we're talking about living lives that are open and transparent, where there's nothing hidden, there's nothing shameful that is kind of kept buried underneath the surface, but things are brought up. Because when something is brought into the light, you can see the light shine off it. And instead of something that brings us down and gives us grief and disappointment, it's something that actually releases light and energy into our lives. What that means is it means that I am able to find someone who loves me and loves Jesus, who I can be completely and totally myself with, totally unashamed. It means that we are able to, instead of burying and living a separate life, so having a life that everyone sees and then a kind of hidden, dirty, hidden life that is put in the background that we don't want people to see. You know, if they knew this stuff about me, I'd feel so ashamed. If this stuff came up, I'd be absolutely mortified. If people went through my search history, all their illusions about me would be broken. If people knew the thoughts that go on in my brain, they would be disgusted. Actually, it's the opposite of that. It's saying, I want to live my life in a way that is open to people. That's not everybody, but it means that I've got one or two people in my life who know everything about me and are able to love me in it and help me in it and to bring it into the light. And instead of an area of shame, it becomes an area where Christ shines on me. It's like I've woken up from the dead. I have a friend, (laughs) it's true, I do. You're all thinking he doesn't have friends. I do, I have a friend, in fact I've got a couple of friends. But I, I have a particular friend Um, who knows everything about me. And I'm not just talking about Kate, because she doesn't count, because she has to love me, because she's married to me, she signed a contract. I'm talking about someone who is a faithful, good friend to walk with me. You know, this is why we have mentoring in Metro, so that you can have someone who's faithful to you, who's for you, who's got your back, who's on your side, who can help you. And I've got a friend who, who says, Philip, tell me the things that you don't want to tell me. And uh, he asked me that question because I've asked him to ask me that question. And you know, 
everything within me doesn't want to give guys that permission to ask me that stuff because I want to preserve the image that I'm a holy man of God and I never have any sin in my life and I just completely like Christ in every area. I'd love you guys to think that. I'd love people to have that impression of me but it would be a lie and there would be a source of shame in me because I would see the mismatch between who I pretend to be and who I really am. But what I have is I have someone who knows everything. You know, I could, ha- I could be outed And we have a very kind of outing culture. We have a a, a kind of culture which is very, very judgmental. You know, anyone that's asked to host the Oscars or do something cool or or fun, everyone will go around through their Twitter history, pulling up everything that they said when they were like 17 years old. And I'm not condoning those things, but I'm just saying, it's a really, really harsh world that we live in. And then people say, oh, I didn't realize they were that bad. They are, let's cancel them or, or let's just not give them that good thing because... You know, we, we now know what they're really like. In my life, I can honestly say there's people who know already all that stuff. If I got outed, everyone else would say, the guys that got my back are like, yeah, it's got way worse stuff than that in his back pocket. But we're working through it and we're loving Jesus through it. But suddenly there's a release and an openness in being real and transparent with someone. So we live loving and then we live open. This is a fantastic way to live. Again, ask yourself the question, do I have someone in my life who has the permission to ask me the questions that I don't want to be asked? Is there someone who can, I, I can go to, someone that can hear my confession, someone that knows about my struggles, even the stuff that uh, I, I'm even being tempted by. I want someone to know that and I want someone to clap me on the back and pray for me and say, let's go through this together. Because that is the only way out of shame. It's to bring stuff into the light. And then suddenly that area that I'm struggling with, that area of sin, that area of brokenness, suddenly becomes a a, a light because it's now a means of grace for God to work in my life through my friend. And then here's the final uh, lie. It's this. Lie number three. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. You know, all these things, Christian rules, Christian living, is just arbitrary, it's random, it is, you know, nitpicking about little stuff. They're of no consequence. It doesn't really matter. But actually, the Bible says, look, let's not be naive about this stuff. There's always consequences to everything that you do. And you can't pick the cause and not get the effect with it. You can't pick up one end of the stick without picking up the other end of the stick also. The way that I live, the choices that I make, they have consequences. I need to be smart about this. And so here in verse 15, Paul says, he says, be very careful. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, naive, but as wise, smart, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now let's carry on. Let's go to the next one. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. The Bible says that when you live in a way that is not loving, in a way that is not open, there are consequences to that. 
And so you talk about drinking, you talk about drunkenness, and it's easy to say, well, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's not hurting anybody. It's not like I'm a really mean drunk. But actually what the Bible says is, be wise about this stuff. There are consequences. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. What's debauchery, you say? Debauchery is a kind of uninhibited behavior where you lose control and you start to make bad choices and you find yourself going down a route that can be negative, harmful, unhelpful. And it's about being smart. And so you've got three ways in which you should live. First of all, we're living loving, then we're living open, and then we're living smart. Live loving, live a loving life. Live openly, but live smart. So many of the things that scripture talks about in our lives, they're there for a reason. And actually just digging in a little bit. What is the consequence of this? What is this going to do to me? What is this going to do to the people around me? What kind of seed am I sowing? And what kind of payback is going to come for me in this? And so Paul says, look, we should look to live these incredibly loving lives as secure people loved by God. We should be open with one another. We should make decent, informed, wise choices. And then as a result, what we should be doing is we should be singing together and we should be worshipping God. We should be making music in our hearts to God. That's why Kate was talking about the stuff, why we gather. Why is it important for us to be meeting together Sunday after Sunday? It's because there's something that is happening in us. There's a, a good consequence that's coming out of this. But each week we've had a little challenge and I want to leave you with this challenge for this, um, this week. And like I said at the very beginning, this is an incredibly profound book. And all we're doing is we're kind of skimming over the top. Um, This is an appetizer. It's to whet your appetite for something. But here's the challenge for this week. Ephesians challenge number five. Think about a behavior that is not loving or wise. Bring it into the open with someone this week. How many of you have someone that knows everything about you? And again, don't count your partner. Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mum, dad, dog. They don't count because it's too easy to keep them kind of locked into a cone of silence with you. You you need someone on the outside. You need a trusted friend. You need a a mentor. You need someone in hub. You you need someone that you can go to that that you can trust and say, look. In fact, the the best way to do this, because, you know, the thing about my friend is that I do the same thing with him. And he's like a complete sinner. I mean, he's awful. I get to hear the incredible stuff. No, it's not true. He's perfect. It's really embarrassing. It's just me. Um, It really is just me. But find that person. And then say, what is, what is one thing? You know, for, for you, it may be the language thing. It might be the drinking thing. It might be the way that you treat people in, in dating relationships. Maybe you're very casual with people's emotions. And it's not that we're saying, don't do this because the Bible says so. We're saying, don't live like this because it's not loving. And it's not wise. So let's bring it out into the open. So here's the big idea for this week. It's this, as beloved children of God, we are called to live lives that are loving, open, and smart. Loving, open, and smart. When I was putting this together, I was thinking about you know, cute ways that we could do it, L-O-S, 
we should be losers because L-O-S-ers, loving open smarters, but you don't need that. You just need to know what's the most loving way that I can live. How can I be open in the way that I live so that we're not a bunch of hypocrites? Yes, we're broken. Yes, we've got a long way to go, but we're not keeping that hidden in a back cupboard somewhere. We're, we're being open. We're bringing it into the light. But we're also being wise and smart. We're being informed about our choices. We're not being naive, thinking, it doesn't matter. It's a victimless crime. It's my own body. It's my own choice. Yes, 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 but it's not smart. It's not a good play. And so think about an area in your life that you know is an area of brokenness and challenge and ask God to help you find someone that you can bring in on that. Let's pray together now. I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to say what it is. But I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up. If you know right now there's an area of behavior um, that you have in your life, a pattern of behavior that you, you feel unhappy about, that you know is not right, that um, if people knew this about you, you'd feel embarrassed at the least, and you want it to change. If that's you, I want you to put a hand up. I don't know what it is, but I just want to give us a chance just to kind of signal to ourselves and to God. Okay, you can put your hands down. I want you to spend some time just thinking through that one thing. I want you to bring it to God and I want you to ask him to help you. Most of all, that you would know that you're dearly loved. No matter what you do, no matter how you live, you could not be more dearly loved. But also know that God wants you to be all that you're supposed to be, to be like Christ. So I'm just going to invite us right now where we're, we're sitting. I'm not going to ask for a big emotional appeal. But I'm going to ask that God would give us a strength and a purity. I t- I'll tell you the thing about my, my language, which I did feel ashamed about. Um, I remember bringing it to God after reading this passage in Ephesians. And within 24 hours, my language changed, and it changed permanently. It was like I just had a language transplant. And I know that God can do really powerful things in our lives. So if you want to be part of that, I'm going to pray right now, but I just want to invite you to have your your hands, your, your palms facing up as if you're expecting God to give you something good. I'm going to pray for his spirit to help us where we struggle and where we're challenged and where we do carry shame. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus right now that you'd help us to be people who are loving in the extreme. Father, I pray that we would be a community that shine as stars in the night sky because we reflect so much the love and the beauty of God. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd fill us right now with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for everyone that's reaching out to you right now. Lord, as we name these things in our own hearts, the things that cause us challenge and grief and sorrow, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd give us an anointing of your Holy Spirit to break through, to go through these things, to overcome, to be changed, to be transformed. 
Lord, would you help us in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus. And I want to speak as well, Lord God, to all um, areas of shame and regret. Lord, where we're very, very conscious. We don't need someone at the front telling us about this stuff. We're very conscious about the people that we have hurt and the things that we really deeply regret. And I want to pray, Lord God, that you'd release us from bonds of condemnation. Lord, that you'd release us from shame. Lord, I pray that we would know that we're forgiven. And in the name of Jesus right now, I proclaim forgiveness over you. Jesus, you gave us that ability and that commission to forgive people's sins. And they would know that they're forgiven. And that whatever we forgive and and loose on earth is forgiven and loose in heaven. And right now, I, I proclaim forgiveness over you. For those of you that are feeling this right now, watching online, that deep guilt and deep shame, in Jesus' name, I proclaim you're forgiven. That God forgives you. The blood of Jesus is shed for you. Jesus dies for this. It's washed away. The slate is wiped clean. There is no condemnation for you. There is no judgment for you. You are forgiven. I pray, Lord God, we would know that profoundly in Jesus' power.